0: And turn to the book of Acts, not Romans. If you missed last week, you missed it, we're done. Although actually we're turning back there a few times this morning. But we're done with our study in Romans, which brings us back to our our parent study, our umbrella study, whatever the right idea is. It brings us back to the footsteps of Paul, which is the study that we've been in for a few years now. We're headed to Acts twenty, but because we haven't been here for a minute, we're going to go to Acts eighteen. We're going to start there and, and get a running start at our text this morning. And while you're getting a running start, turning there, what's the greatest miracle you've ever seen? I mean, I'm like dramatic Book of Acts kind of miracle. I'm asking. Somebody asked me when when I was down at youth camp a couple weeks ago, and the first thing that came to my mind, it's not the only thing now that I've had time to think about it, but the first thing that came to my mind were supernatural healings that I've seen, that I've been privileged to to pray for. One person with cancer, one person with with a hole in their heart, both requiring immediate dramatic surgery, except both times the person showed up the day of the operation, The need for it was gone. And both doctors in both cases, neither one of them Christian, both, as far as I know, atheists, both of them said, well, this is just a miracle. Because those things happen. Our brother Greg Busey, many of you remember him, he's with the Lord now, but he shared several times at Men's Studies and in other settings how Jesus personally saved his life in Vietnam crashed his helicopter into the jungle canopy and was dying, would have died, had Jesus not personally, dramatically, directly intervened. That's how Greg became a believer. I have a pastor friend who tells us about the time before he was a pastor. He was in law enforcement and he was following a truck that was barreling out of control, speeding down icy roads, about to miss a turn and go down a hill, When suddenly the driver of that truck and his passenger, his wife, were behind my friend. And he didn't pass them, and they didn't climb out or fall out. It was just one minute they were in the truck, and the next minute they won't. Miracle. Because miracles happen. And I get that everyone who's ever held a newborn baby knows that miracles happen, and that's true. Our world is full of everyday miracles. But the world that's full of everyday miracles is also the world where dramatic once-in-a-lifetime miracles do happen. And this morning, as we turn to the book of Acts, Paul, beginning the return leg of his third missionary journey, that's where we left off, we're going to read about one of those miracles. Paul's going to raise a man, possibly a boy, he's going to raise someone from the dead. And that's amazing. That's amazing. But it happens. Happens in the Bible. Happens in the world. And when it happens, every time it happens, it's incredible. But what I find more incredible, what I find astonishing, in fact, the thing that blows my mind is amazing as it is when someone is raised from the dead, it's still not the greatest miracle that Paul was privileged to be a part of. Let's get into the word and we'll talk about that. But before we do, it's our first time back in Acts in a while. For the last for the last year of our lives we've been in Romans and so Paul's been in sort of suspended animation in Corinth. He wasn't actually there that long, but but Corinth is where Paul wrote Romans and that's where he's bend. The point is I want to spend 10 or 15 minutes remembering where Paul is and how he got there and what we know about where he's going before we get to this miracle. If you've been part of Calvary for a while, you know that we do this from time to time, usually when we're transitioning from one book to another. And I think it's important that we do it from time to time. I think it's useful to remember that what we're reading is the inspired word of God, but also the factual, historical, literal story of events that happened. Last week, we were talking about some of the who, the, who the people were that we're reading about in the history that scripture gives us. This week, we're going to look more at the where, where Paul is going and why. Scroll back to chapter 18, book of Acts. I said third missionary journey, but we're actually going to start even before that. As the chapter opens, Acts chapter 18, Paul is on his second missionary journey. We got maps. We got maps aplenty this morning. He starts in Antioch and he makes his way over across Galatia. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Derby and Lystra over to Troas. This is Acts 16, he makes his way to Philippi, Lydia, the seller of purple, the Philippian jailer and all of that, Thessalonica, Berea, that's the beginning of Acts 17, Athens, the Mars Hill Sermon in Athens is is Acts 17, and then Acts 18 finds Paul in Corinth around 52 AD or so. So let's slow down a little bit because that's where Paul slows down a little bit. Acts 18, 52 AD or so, is where Paul meets uh, Achilla and Priscilla for the first time. We saw them last week in Romans 16, right? Paul starts off ministering in the synagogues, Acts 18, verse 4. Ends up, verse 6, ministering to the Gentiles. And verse 11, we read that he stays there for 18 months. Maybe longer if the 18 months starts with his ministry to the Gentiles. Maybe it's he's ministering in the synagogues for a while on the clock, 18 months or more is the point. He's in Corinth for some time, preaching the gospel, teaching the word, making disciples, writing First and 2 Thessalonians. But look down at verse 18. After a good while, Acts 18, verse 18, after 18 months or more, it's 53 AD, plus or minus, and it's time to head back to Syria, Syria, Antioch, his home church over there. Verse 19, he stops at Ephesus and preaches in the synagogues there because that's what Paul almost always did. Almost always goes to the synagogues first, preaches to his kinsmen, his countrymen. And, it, and it, apparently he, he had a reception. He, he, the people found him interesting, intriguing, and they want him to stay longer. But chapter 18, verse 21, Paul says, I can't. i got to get back to Jerusalem. I want to be there for the feast. What feast? I don't know. Probably Passover. But, verse 21, Paul says, I'll come back when I can. Lord willing, you'll see me again. I'll try to get here if God allows it. In chapter 18, verse 21, then he sails from Ephesus. Starting a few steps back, reminding ourselves how Paul got to be where he is when we pick up the story, also because some of these places are going to turn out to be important for his return trip. So Paul is in Corinth, goes over to Ephesus. Acts 18, verse 20, when he sails from Ephesus, that's inferred. I'm not sure I agree with that. I'm not sure that we know that for a fact. But he ends up in Caesarea, (laughs) where he goes up, verse 22, to greet the church, and then goes down to Antioch. That sounds confusing until we remember that he said he was headed to Jerusalem, and when you're going to Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem, city on a hill. Always go up to Jerusalem, whether you're coming from the north, south, east, or west, you're going up to Jerusalem, you go down from Jerusalem. So he goes up to greet the church in Jerusalem, goes down, even though it's to the north, to Antioch. So, second missionary journey over, Paul ends up in Antioch. It's 53 AD or so. Verse 23, not long afterward, probably weeks or months, he heads out on journey number three. First stop, verse 23, Galatia and Phrygia. So he's back up here again, visiting and encouraging the churches that he planted years earlier, strengthening and encouraging the believers there. Fast forward to chapter 19. Paul makes good on his promise. Acts 19, verse 1, Paul is back in Ephesus. Here we go. Paul back in Ephesus, verse 8, he ministers for three months in the synagogues because he goes there first. And he stays there until the opposition gets to the point where ministry is no longer productive. Verse 9, he and the believers that he's led to Christ leave and they start a church which turns out to be one of the most important churches in the New Testament, right? The church in Ephesus, the Ephesian church. This is who the the, the leaders of that church is, who Paul speaks to in the middle of Acts chapter 20, one of his most important moments. The epistle, the, the letter to the Ephesians that Paul writes when he's under house arrest in Rome, written to that church. Paul sends Timothy in 1 Timothy. Paul is sending Timothy to pastor the church, Tradition, Church tradition says that the Apostle John later shepherded that church, and in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus writes a letter, speaks directly to the church in Ephesus. So this is a significant church, and it all starts here in Acts 19, where we read, verse 10, Paul spends two years. And again, probably more than two years, counting the time that he spends in the synagogue. Spends a good chunk of time there. But from here, things get a little tricky. After two and a half, three years, including travel time, 56 AD, Paul's ready to head back. But verse 21, Acts 19, verse 21, he's not heading back to Antioch. In fact, as far as we know, Paul never goes back to Antioch. After he leaves Antioch and begins this journey, this third missionary journey, we have no record of Paul going back to his home church ever again. Acts 19, verse 21, when these things were accomplished after Paul's ministry in Ephesus, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, southern Greece to you and me, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. Now that should sound familiar. Because that's what we read in Romans just a couple weeks ago. Romans 15, verse 24, Paul says, Hey, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. And it's actually in that same passage in Romans that we get an understanding of why Paul just said what he said about Macedonia and Achaia. I'm going to go to Macedonia and Achaia, then Jerusalem, then Rome. Geographically, that makes no sense. Here's where we're sorry. Here's where Paul is in Ephesus. He's going to go over to Macedonia and Achaia, and then he's going to go to Jerusalem, and then he's going to go to Rome. Paul, what are you thinking? Are you trying to like rack up frequent sailor miles? But Romans 15, where we just were a moment ago, Now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. We read that a few weeks ago also. And we read similar things in First and Second Corinthians, which were written about the same time all of which makes sense of Paul's back-and-forth-and-back-again travel plan. He's going to pick up the offerings pledged by these various Gentile churches and then carry them back to Jerusalem, to the impoverished church, to the needy believers who are back there. Spoiler alert, things don't go to plan. End of Acts 19... Paul's time in Ephesus concludes with a riot, and that's not why Paul leave. He just said in verse 21 he was already planning to leave. He had already prayed about leaving. He had already purposed in the Spirit. He and God had already agreed that that would be the plan, that he'd go to Macedonia, Achaia, then Jerusalem, then Rome. But the riot probably settles Paul's heart around the timing. Rioting probably says, yeah, this would be a good time to to take the next step in in my journey with Jesus. So Acts 20, 56 AD or so, Paul heads out. Chapter 20, verse 1, After the uproar had ceased, after the riot had ended, Paul called the disciples to himself, those that had been family together. They They had done life together for a couple years. He embraced them and departed to go to Macedonia. More specifically, his journey takes him then (laughs) up to Troas. He's in Ephesus. He he goes to Troas. He goes up to Philippi. We know this because it's in Philippi that he writes 2 Corinthians and fills in some of these details, fills in some of the blanks that we have in in Acts around his itinerary. It's also possible, think back a couple weeks to Romans 15, It's also possible this is when Paul makes his way to places like Illyricum. Romans 15, verse 19, read a few weeks ago. By the power of the Spirit of God, from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I've fully preached the gospel of Christ. And we asked ourselves when we were there, when did that happen? And we said to ourselves, you know what? Scripture doesn't say. But it's possible. Some scholars would even say likely when Paul goes to the region of Macedonia, as long as he's up here in this zip code, Illyricum is there along the coastline. What today we would call Croatia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Albania, Montenegro. It's possible that as long as Paul is up here that he slips up there. Because there's enough time it's, it's possible, because we know from comparing things that Paul says in various letters, he's in that region, he's sitting in verse 1, Acts 20, verse 1, for several months, maybe as long as a year. It's sort of like John's Gospel, when, when between you know, verse 17 and verse 18, well, nine months pass, and the reason we know that is that the other Gospel writers write about that time. We glimpse in other epistles that time passes between Acts 20, verse 1 and Acts 20, verse 2. There's enough time for, for Paul to go on a field trip, in other words. But at the end of that time, Acts 20, verse 2, now when he'd gone over that region, over, when, after he'd gone over there and encouraged them with many words for many months, he came to Greece, southern Greece. He came down to Achaia down there, and specifically all the way down to Corinth. And he stayed there for three months. And it's there, we suspect, in the winter of 56 that he wrote the book of Romans. Why winter? It seems if, if Paul is headed back in this direction, what might keep him in Corinth for three months would be there's three months of the year he can't sail across the Aegean Sea. Don't know that for a fact, but it seems likely that's why he parked there for 90 days. And that's where we left off, because that's where he wrote the book of Romans. And this is how we've been structuring our study. If you're joining us in progress, we're using the book of Acts as our through line, as our backbone. But we're pausing in the book of Acts to jump out and read each epistle in the context in which Paul wrote it. So this is where we pause, because it's in Corinth that Paul writes the book of Romans. Now we hit play. Paul's spending the winter there, or three months there, at the end of which time he's probably planning to just sail over across the Aegean Sea (coughs) and end up, we read, in Syria. Wait a minute. I thought he didn't go back to Antioch. Yeah, he's probably planning on making port somewhere in Caesarea or north of Caesarea that would be Syria and then make his way down to Jerusalem. Except, except, remember the part about things not going to plan? Acts 20 verse 3, the Jews plotted against him, against Paul, as he was about to sail to Syria. Why? Not sure. Maybe they hated the gospel. Maybe Paul made enemies during the three months that he was there stirred up hate and discontent maybe some of the jewish leadership remembered paul's first time there three or four years earlier when and this is back in acts 18 when the leader of the synagogue got saved and and then others got saved after him that's embarrassing And then, still Acts 18, they haul Paul in front of the Roman court, in front of the pro-council, only to be embarrassed because the pro-council says, I I don't want anything to do with this. This This is your stuff. Go away. Maybe they're holding a grudge. Regardless, old grudge, new frustration, doesn't matter. Some of the Jewish leadership wants Paul dead. And it sounds like they're planning for him to maybe have an accident accident, in quotes, on the ship, and maybe his body just happens to slip overboard. In any case, Paul finds out and decides instead of sailing across the Aegean, instead of going here, he's going to retrace his steps. He's going to go over land back up to Macedonia. Verse 3, he decided to return through Macedonia at which point Luke decides to fill in a few details at which point Luke says oh by the way I haven't mentioned but Paul's not alone verse 4 and so Potter of Berea accompanied him to Asia also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia who are these guys Representatives of the various churches that were sending funds to assist the impoverished church in Jerusalem. Why do they have to go? Do they not trust Paul? No, although if that were the case, it wouldn't be a problem because Paul makes clear in first and first Thessala- uh, and Second Corinthians, he, he's all about accountability. He welcomes the accountability. but I think the bigger reason they're with him, Paul's not coming back this way anytime soon. At least he's not planning to. They're coming with him so that after traveling to Jerusalem with Paul, they could go to their home church and report back, hey, this is what we saw, and this was the need, and this is how the resources were used. We do the same thing. If you think back a few years when we were involved in ministry in Haiti, Bud and, and Dale and some others went to Haiti to meet the pastors that, that we were uh, coming alongside and supporting and, and, and you know, kick the tires and put eyes on the ministry there. I'm doing the same thing in September. We're coming alongside the 10th Hour Project, which is part of Agents for Christ, and they do ministry in Peru and Uganda, other places. I'm, I'm going there to teach, yeah, because I like to teach because God has has called me to to disciple young people for ministry. But more than that, I want to put eyes on their ministry in their context. It's one thing to see people do ministry here in our context, but what is it like on on their home turf? And that's part of why I'm going. So so these guys are with Paul for much the same reason. These men, verse 5, going ahead, waited for us at Troas. So here it gets a little confusing. Apparently Luke has rejoined the team. Because because the pronouns just shift. We just went from third person to first person. The last time we saw Luke was Acts 16. Paul left him behind in Philippi. That's actually 17, verse 1. But that's that the last we knew Luke was in Philippi. Maybe the pastor of the church there, we're not sure. But now verse 5, he's with Paul. We can tell because it's not they, it's we. And 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 together, he and Paul have gotten separated from the rest of the group, the rest of these names that Paul just mentioned. Maybe as an evasion tactic. It's possible, this is just speculation, but it's possible Paul hears about the, the plot against his life and he says to the group, okay, you guys go ahead as planned. So they'll see the group moving and they'll think that everything is going to plan and they'll get on the ship after you and by the time they realize I'm not with you, it'll be too late. Meanwhile, I'm going to cut through Philippi and I'm going to pick up Luke, because Luke might be a good guy to have with us. Speculation. But we know on Passover, probably 57, this is plus or minus a year. On Passover of 57, Paul and Luke are in Philippi. The rest of the team's gone ahead to Troas. But verse 6, but we, Luke and Paul, sailed away from Philippi after the Days of Unleavened Bread. So that would be after the, the triple feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of first fruits. And in five days, join them at Troas. Because it's, you can see, Philippi, Troas, not, not very far apart. Where we spent seven days. So recap. Paul spends two or three years in Ephesus, writes 1 Corinthians. Goes to Philippi, chapter 20, verse 1, writes 2 Corinthians. Stays there for like months or, or maybe as long as a year. Goes to Corinth, verse 2, 90 days, writes Romans. Heads to Philippi, verse 3, because of the plot. Ends up, verse 4, at Troas. And because we're doing geography, let's just finish it up. From Troas, goes down to Miletus, from there to Patera, from there to Tyre, from there to Caesarea, there to Jerusalem. Acts 21 f- mentions a few other cities not on the map. We'll read that when we get there, but, but that's how the, how, the, how the journey ends. But obviously, you can tell from how much I'm skipping over, there are some adventures along the way. The first of which happens in Troas. You've been thinking for the last 15 minutes, when are we going to get to the miracle? He started the message talking about miracles. When are we going to get... We're here. Acts 20, verse 6. We're back in Troas. Paul and the team arrive. They stay seven days. Now, on the first day of the week, which was Sunday... When the disciples came together to break bread, either communion or the agape feast following communion or both, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So they've been there a week, which makes sense. Anytime I go places uh, on a missions trip or anything like that, I like to worship with people you know, on, on a Sunday morning. That's special. So Paul stays for a week. Hey, I want to be there with you on a Sunday morning. And, and on Sunday, they worship together. Evening, they're back together, or, or maybe they're still together. And Paul's either preaching. This was either, hey, Paul, come back and, and, and share with us one more time, or maybe it's dessert and Q&A. We don't know. It's going late, and no one cares because the people in Troas are saying, we don't know when we're going to have this opportunity again. We don't know if Paul's ever coming back. And Paul's thinking, you know, I'll sleep on the boat. So they're talking late into the night, and there were many lamps in the upper room. They were in a, a building, maybe like this one. Flip to the next slide. Not that one. Not that one. Go one more. Yeah, this is not in Troas, but it's a, it's a building actually from the period. So they're they're on the second floor, and and they're behind you know one of these openings and there were many lamps in the upper room because they needed light where they were gathered together and those lamps were not only giving off light but giving off heat giving off smoke giving off fumes and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus young is ambiguous he could be 10 he could be 40 he could be anywhere in between who was sinking into a deep sleep because it was almost midnight and there were lamps with fumes and smoke and heat, and that's maybe why he's sitting in the window. He's trying to stay awake. He's trying to get some fresh air or some cooler air. You know, like like you know, I would go to class in college. I'd sit in the front row because that was my best chance at trying to stay awake. Um, Troas, by the way, looks like this today. Troas is ruins but they're in a building similar to the, to the one that I just showed you. Eutychus is sitting in the window trying to stay awake. Eventually, verse 9, he loses the battle. Despite his best efforts, he's overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. And he was dead. Luke's a doctor. Remember, Luke is writing this. Luke is a physician. He knows dead when he sees it. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, don't trouble yourself, for his life is in him. Literally, Paul says, quiet down, stop making noise. He's, he's alive. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. They were a lot comforted. And then Paul and, and, and the gang leave the next day. Verse 13, they went ahead to the ship and went to all the places that we just talked about. Down there to the coast, all the way to Jerusalem. Why is this not a bigger deal? I get that Luke says, yeah, they were all comforted a lot. They were all encouraged. Everybody thought it was pretty cool. It's pretty low-key narrative, right, considering Paul raised Eutychus from the dead. That only happens two times in the whole Old Testament. Elijah once, Elisha once. Other than Paul, Peter's the only one that we read doing it uh, among the apostles, Dorcas in Acts chapter 9, Jesus only did it three times. How is this not a big deal? They just leave? It's not a big deal in the Bible. It's also not a big deal. If you, if you, if you go looking for commentaries, if you go looking for people writing about Uticus, it's not a big deal in scholarship either. If you Google Eutychus, you get bad art like this. Or, well, that, that bad art, you get bad art or you get sight gags like the last one. Or you get articles about why pastors shouldn't preach too long. But there's also a band, and I, and I meant to go back and get it, there's also a band called Utica's Falling, which is a great band name. But there's not much serious writing about what happened that night. And my best guess why commentators don't make a big deal out of Eutychus is Paul and Luke don't make a big deal out of it. And I think Paul and Luke don't make a big deal out of it because their attention was on a bigger deal. I think their sights were set on an even greater miracle. Bigger than raising someone from the dead? I think so. And I think one of the reasons, one of the reasons I think so is what Jesus says in John Chapter 14, verse 12. The night before the crucifixion, this is early in the upper room de- discourse. John 14. So, this is right after Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, guys, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these, he will do. That's a big statement. What did Jesus just say? He just said believers. He just said the church. He just said you and me will do the miracles that Jesus did and greater miracles on top of them. Wrap your head around that. Jesus says, those who believe on me, those who come after me, will do miracles just like me. Healing the sick, casting out demons, even raising the dead. Not everyone, not all the time, but not no one and not none of the time. You and those who come after me, Jesus says to the apostles, will do the miracles you've seen me do. Will do the miracles that some of you have already done because they healed the sick and cast down demons. You're going to do that in greater things besides. What's what's greater than raising someone from the dead? Yeah. Raising people from the dead, relatively speaking, not a big thing. Jesus had done it three times. Widow's son in in Luke 7, Jairus' daughter in Luke 8, Lazarus in John 11. So John 14, after all of that, Jesus says, you're going to do greater stuff than raising people from the dead. And we get a clue what he's talking about at the end of the verse. I just put the beginning of the verse on the screen. Let's take it to the end. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Why is it good that Jesus goes to the Father? We read in the Upper Room Discourse, so the Holy Spirit can come. Jesus, who's fully God and fully man. In his resurrection body remains fully God and fully man. and like any man, he can only be one place at a time. And letting the Holy Spirit replace him on earth, Jesus' ministry can now be in as many different places as there are believers. Everyone indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Jesus hints at this in, in chapter 14. He goes there, he says it directly, he says it plainly in chapter 16. It is to your advantage, John 16, 7, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to teach, to equip, to embolden, to empower you. To do what? To be Witnesses to go to the least and to the last and to the lost and tell them how they can be saved, how they can be truly raised from the dead, not just for a few more years on this planet, but for eternity with Jesus. The signs and wonders that Jesus did, the the healing and the deliverance that he empowered the disciples to do, the miracles that Jesus did when he was with us, the ones we see in the book of Acts, the dramatic stuff that that some of us have been privileged to witness or hear about today, they all happen for one reason. To point people to God. Not so that we can sing another chorus of wonder-working power, but so that we might believe what God says. And, like Lloyd said, be saved. Paul doesn't make a big deal out of raising Eutychus because he knows it's not a big deal, not in the big scheme of things. Jesus taught that even raising someone from the dead is not a big deal in the big scheme of things. Raising someone from the dead is not an epic episode compared to the rest of Paul's ministry. Matthew 11 We can come at this a completely different way and get to the same conclusion. Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the greatest person who's ever lived up to this point, Jesus says. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven, least in the church, least of believers is greater than John. That's another incredibly provocative statement, right? But it resonates perfectly with what we've been talking about. Jesus just said that John was the greatest of all the Old Testament saints. Well, what does that mean? It means that he's greater than Moses. It means that he's greater than Elijah. What did John have that they didn't have? It's not miracles. Moses and Elijah both had a long list of miracles to their name, right? Parting the Red Sea, calling it on fire from heaven, and many other things. They had miracles to all day. How many miracles did John do? Zero. John 10, verse 41, John performed no sign. No sign, no wonder, no miracles. So what makes John the greatest? Again, the answer is at the end of the verse. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. John was the greatest up to that point John was the greatest of his day because of his understanding of who Jesus was because of his willing to declare that Jesus was behold the lamb of god he says John 129 behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world but Jesus says every one of us here this morning is greater than John how not because miracles because knowledge, because understanding. John knew that Jesus was the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. We know how Jesus took away the sins of the world, takes away the sin of the world. We we read John's story in the Gospels, John the Baptist. For as much as he knew and understood, he was still confused on a few points. I didn't know him we read in John 131. John the Baptist talking, speaking of Jesus. I didn't know him, I just knew about him. I just knew that he was coming. We know him. And we know all about him. And we know the rest of the story. We know about the cross. And we know about the death that Jesus died on the cross, the death that he died in our place. We know how we receive forgiveness. How we enter into eternal life with Jesus by believing on him. I mean, in that sense, there's kids back in children's church, a lot of them, who are greater than John the Baptist right now, right here, this moment. Why? Because they can tell someone the gospel. The complete gospel. Hey, Jesus treated places with yet the cross. He died and rose again. Children can offer someone the chance to be saved and be part of a greater miracle than Moses or Elijah ever did. A greater miracle than Paul raising Eutychus from the dead. They can be part of someone's salvation. Miracles happen. Miracles happen. And and praise God they do, and praise God when they do, right? But when they do, when a terminally ill person is healed, when when an already pronounced dead crash victim is revived or, or removed supernaturally from a fatal accident just in the nick of time, doesn't it just remind us of what we already know? God is alive. And he's calling us to new life in him. He saved us. Listen, he saved us to be like Paul to follow Paul's example and not obsess over signs and wonders and not encourage people to obsess over signs and wonders, but to go into the world and tell people the greatest wonder of all, how they can be raised to life forever. To tell people how they can be the greatest miracle of all. Sundays are great, right? Sundays are when we come together to worship and pray, study the Bible and talk about Jesus. And sometimes we see extraordinary things happen right here in our midst. But sometimes we come together on a Sunday and we share stories of what's happened, the miraculous thing that has occurred since the last time we were together. But what's important, whatever happens on a Sunday, What's important is that we leave like Paul. Not just looking forward to next Sunday, but looking forward to the next opportunity to obey God. The next chance we have to follow God. The next opportunity we have to tell someone how they can have new life with God forever. Father, thank you that you have seen fit to to send us on this mission, to entrust us with your ministry, to ask us to continue what you began. And thank you, oh, thank you, Lord, that you haven't left us here alone to do it, that you have filled us with your spirit, that you have come to live in our hearts. And so we don't need to rely on our strength, our wisdom, our understanding, our discernment, We can, as as, as we sang earlier, rest, trust, abide, believe, receive, and obey. Lord, may we go forth today in obedience. May we go forth today rejoicing in the miracles that we are and looking for the miracles that you want to do in the hearts of the people that we meet.